Section 20 of Prefaces and Prologues to Famous Books. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Read by Dennis Sayers. Prefaces and Prologues to Famous Books. Edited by Charles W. Eliot. Part 1 of Preface to the English Dictionary by Samuel Johnson. 1755. Footnote. For a sketch of Johnson's life, see the introduction to Life of Addison in the volume of English Essays. The interest of his preface to the Great Dictionary need hardly be pointed out, since the work itself is a landmark in the history of our language. The letter to Chesterfield, short though it is, is a document of great importance in the freeing of literature from patronage, and is in itself a notable piece of literature. The preface to Johnson's edition of Shakespeare's plays not only explains the editor's conception of his task, but contains what is perhaps the best appreciation of the dramatist, written in the 18th century. Preface to the Dictionary from A Dictionary of the English Language by Samuel Johnson Part 1 It is the fate of those who toil at the lower employments of life to be rather driven by fear of evil than attracted by the prospect of good, to be exposed to censure without hope of praise, to be disgraced by miscarriage or punished for neglect, where success would have been without applause, and diligence without reward. Among these unhappy mortals is the writer of dictionaries, whom mankind have considered, not as the pupil, but the slave of science, the pionier of literature, doomed only to remove rubbish and clear obstructions from the paths of learning and genius who press forward to conquest and glory, without bestowing a smile on the humble drudge that facilitates their progress. Every other author may aspire to praise. The lexicographer can only hope to escape reproach, and even this negative recompense has been yet granted to very few. I have, notwithstanding this discouragement, attempted a dictionary of the English language, which, while it was employed in the cultivation of every species of literature, has itself been hitherto neglected, suffered to spread, under the direction of chance, into wild exuberance, resigned to the tyranny of time and fashion, and exposed to the corruptions of ignorance and caprices of innovation. When I took the first survey of my undertaking, I found our speech copious without order, and energetic without rules. Wherever I turned my view, there was perplexity to be disentangled, and confusion to be regulated. Choice was to be made out of boundless variety, without any established principle of selection. Adulterations were to be detected, without a settled test of purity, and modes of expression to be rejected or received without the suffrages of any writers of classical reputation or acknowledged authority. 
Having therefore no assistance but from general grammar, I applied myself to the perusal of our writers, and noting whatever might be of use to ascertain or illustrate any word or phrase, accumulated in time the materials of a dictionary, which, by degrees, I reduced to method, establishing to myself, in the progress of the work, such rules as experience and analogy suggested to me, experience, which practice and observation were continually increasing, and analogy, which, though in some words obscure, was evident in others. In adjusting the orthography, which has been to this time unsettled and fortuitous, I found it necessary to distinguish those irregularities that are inherent in our tongue, and perhaps coeval with it, from others which the ignorance or negligence of later writers has produced. Every language has its anomalies, which, though inconvenient, and in themselves once unnecessary, must be tolerated among the imperfections of human things, and which require only to be registered, that they may not be increased, and ascertained, that they may not be confounded. But every language has likewise its improprieties and absurdities, which it is the duty of the lexicographer to correct or proscribe. As language was at its beginning merely oral, all words of necessary or common use were spoken before they were written, and while they were unfixed by any visible signs, must have been spoken with great diversity, as we now observe, those who cannot read, to catch sounds imperfectly, and utter them negligently. When this wild and barbarous jargon was first reduced to an alphabet, every penman endeavoured to express, as he could, the sounds which he was accustomed to pronounce, or to receive, and vitiated in writing such words as were already vitiated in speech. The powers of the letters, when they were applied to a new language, must have been vague and unsettled, and therefore different hands would exhibit the same sound by different combinations. From this uncertain pronunciation arise, in a great part, the various dialects of the same country, which will always be observed to grow fewer and less different as books are multiplied, and from this arbitrary representation of sounds by letters proceeds that diversity of spelling observable in the Saxon remains, and I suppose in the first books of every nation, which perplexes or destroys analogy, and produces anomalous formations, which, being once incorporated, can never be afterward dismissed or reformed. Of this kind are the derivatives length from long, strength from strong, darling from dear, breadth from broad, from dry, drought, and from high, height, which Milton, in zeal for analogy, writes H-I-G-H-T-H, -h. quid te exempta juvat spinis de pluribus una. To change all would be too much, 
and to change one is nothing. This uncertainty is most frequent in the vowels, which are so capriciously pronounced, and so differently modified, by accident or affectation, not only in every province, but in every mouth, that to them, as is well known to etymologists, little regard is to be shown in the deduction of one language from another. Such defects are not errors in orthography, but spots of barbarity impressed so deep in the English language that criticism can never wash them away. These, therefore, must be permitted to remain untouched. But many words have likewise been altered by accident, or depraved by ignorance, as the pronunciation of the vulgar has been weakly followed, and some still continue to be variously written, as authors differ in their care or skill. Of these it was proper to inquire the true orthography, which I have always considered as depending on their derivation, and have therefore referred them to their original languages. Thus I write, enchant, enchantment, enchanter, after the French, and incantation, after the Latin. Thus entire, e-n-t-i-r-e, is chosen rather than i-n-t-i-r-e, because it passed to us, not from the Latin integer, but from the Greek, entier. Of many words it is difficult to say whether they were immediately received from the Latin or the French, since at the time, when we had dominions in France, we had Latin service in our churches. It is, however, my opinion that the French generally supplied us, for we have few Latin words, among the term of domestic use, which are not French, but many French which are very remote from Latin. Even in words, of which the derivation is apparent, I have been often obliged to sacrifice uniformity to custom. Thus I write, in compliance with a numberless majority, convey and inveigh, deceit and receipt, fancy and phantom. Sometimes the derivative varies from the primitive, as explain and explanation, repeat and repetition. Some combinations of letters, having the same power, are used indifferently without any discoverable reason of choice, as in choke, c-h-o-a-k, choke, c-h-o-k-e, soap, s-o-a-p, soap, s-o-p-e, fuel, f-e-w-e-l, fuel, f-u-e-l, and many others, which I have sometimes inserted twice, that those who search for them under either form may not search in vain. In examining the orthography of any doubtful word, the mode of spelling by which it is inserted in the series of the dictionary is to be considered as that to which I give, perhaps not often rashly, the preference. I have left, in the examples, to every author his own practice unmolested, that the reader may balance suffrages and judge between us. But this question is not always to be determined by reputed or by real learning. Some men, intent upon greater things, have thought little on sounds and derivations. Some, 
knowing in the ancient tongues, have neglected those in which our words are commonly to be sought. Thus Hammond writes, Fessibleness, for feasibleness, because I suppose he imagined it derived immediately from the Latin, and some words, such as dependent, d-e-p-e-n-d-a-n-t, dependent, d-e-p-e-n-d-e-n-t, dependence, d-e-p-e-n-d-a-n-c-e, dependence, d-e-p-e-n-d-e-n-c-e, vary their final syllable, as one or other language is present to the writer. In this part of the work, where caprice has long wantoned without control, and vanity sought praise by petty reformation, I have endeavoured to proceed with a scholar's reverence for antiquity, and a grammarian's regard to the genius of our tongue. I have attempted few alterations, and among those few, perhaps the greater part is from the modern to the ancient practice, and I hope I may be allowed to recommend to those whose thoughts have been, perhaps, employed too anxiously on verbal singularities, not to disturb, upon narrow views, or for minute propriety, the orthography of their fathers. It has been asserted that for the law to be known is of more importance than to be right. Change, says Hooker, is not made without inconvenience, even from worse to better. There is in constancy and stability a general and lasting advantage, which will always overbalance the slow improvements of gradual correction. Much less ought our written language to comply with the corruptions of oral utterance, or copy that which every variation of time or place makes different from itself, and imitate those changes which will again be changed, while imitation is employed in observing them. This recommendation of steadiness and uniformity does not proceed from an opinion that particular combinations of letters have much influence on human happiness, or that truth may not be successfully taught by modes of spelling, fanciful and erroneous. I am not yet so lost in lexicography as to forget that words are the daughters of earth, and that things are the sons of heaven. Language is only the instrument of science, and words are but the signs of ideas. I wish, however, that the instrument might be less apt to decay, and that signs might be permanent, like the things which they denote. In settling the orthography, I have not wholly neglected the pronunciation, which I have directed, by printing an accent upon the acute or elevated syllable. It will sometimes be found that the accent is placed by the author quoted, on a different syllable from that marked in the alphabetical entries. It is then to be understood that custom has varied, and that the author has, in my opinion, pronounced wrong. Short directions are sometimes given where the sound of letters is regular, and if they are sometimes omitted, defect in such minute observations will be more easily excused than superfluity.
In the investigation both of the orthography and signification of words, their etymology was necessarily to be considered, and they were therefore to be divided into primitives and derivatives. A primitive word is that which can be traced no further to any English root. Thus, circumspect, circumvent, circumstance, delude, concave, and complicate, though compounds in the Latin, are to us primitives. Derivatives are all those that can be referred to any word in English of greater simplicity. The derivatives I have referred to their primitives with an accuracy sometimes needless. For who does not see that remoteness comes from remote, lovely from love, concavity from concave, and demonstrative from demonstrate? But this grammatical exuberance, the scheme of my work, did not allow me to repress. It is of great importance in examining the general fabric of a language to trace one word from another, by noting the usual modes of derivation and inflection, and uniformity must be preserved in systematical works, though sometimes at the expense of particular propriety. Among other derivatives I have been careful to insert and elucidate the anomalous plurals of nouns and preterites of verbs, which in the Teutonic dialects are very frequent, and though familiar to those who have always used them, interrupt and embarrass the learners of our language. The two languages from which our primitives have been derived are the Roman and Teutonic, under the Roman I comprehend the French and Provincial tongues, and under the Teutonic range the Saxon, German, and all their kindred dialects. Most of our polysyllables are Roman, and our words of one syllable are very often Teutonic. In assigning the Roman original, it has perhaps sometimes happened that I have mentioned only the Latin, when the word was borrowed from the French, and considering myself as employed only in the illustration of my own language, I have not been very careful to observe whether the Latin word be pure or barbarous, or the French elegant or obsolete. For the Teutonic etymologies I am commonly indebted to Junius and Skinner, the only names which I have forborne to quote when I copied their books not that I might appropriate their labours or usurp their honours, but that I might spare a perpetual repetition by one general acknowledgment. Of these, whom I ought not to mention but with the reverence due to instructors and benefactors, Junius appears to have excelled in extent of learning, and Skinner in rectitude of understanding. Junius was accurately skilled in all the northern languages, Skinner probably examined the ancient and remoter dialects only by occasional inspection into dictionaries. But the learning of Junius is often of no other use than to show him a track by which he may deviate from his purpose, to which Skinner always presses forward by the shortest way. Skinner is often ignorant, but never ridiculous, and Junius is always full of knowledge but his variety distracts his judgment, and his learning 
is very frequently disgraced by his absurdities. The votaries of the northern muses will not, perhaps, easily restrain their indignation when they find the name of Junius thus degraded by a disadvantageous comparison. But whatever reverence is due to his diligence or his attainments, it can be no criminal degree of censoriousness to charge that etymologist with want of judgment who can seriously derive dream from drama, because life is a drama, and a drama is a dream, and who declares with a tone of defiance that no man can fail to derive moan from manos, who considers that grief, naturally, loves to be alone. Our knowledge of the northern literature is so scanty that, of words undoubtedly Teutonic, the original is not always to be found in any ancient language, and I have generally inserted Dutch or German substitutes, which I consider not as radical, but parallel, not as the parents, but sisters of the English. The words which are represented as thus related by descent or cognation do not always agree in sense, for it is incident to words as to their authors to degenerate from their ancestors, and to change their manners when they change their country. It is sufficient in etymological inquiries if the senses of kindred words be found such as may easily pass into each other, or such as may both be referred to one general idea. The etymology, so far as it is yet known, was easily found in the volumes where it is particularly and professedly delivered, and by proper attention to the rules of derivation the orthography was soon adjusted. But to collect the words of our language was a task of greater difficulty. The deficiency of dictionaries was immediately apparent, and when they were exhausted, what was yet wanting must be sought by fortuitous and unguided excursions into books, and gleaned as industry should find, or chance should offer it, in the boundless chaos of a living speech. My search, however, has been either skilful or lucky, for I have much augmented the vocabulary. As my design was a dictionary, common or appellative, I have omitted all words which have relation to proper names, such as Arian, Socinian, Calvinist, Benedictine, Mahometan, but have retained those of a more general nature, as heathen, pagan. Of the terms of art I have received, such as could be found either in books of science or technical dictionaries, and have often inserted from philosophical writers words which are supported perhaps only by a single authority, and which being not admitted into general use, stand yet as candidates or probationers, and must depend for their adoption on the suffrage of futurity. The words which our authors have introduced by their knowledge of foreign languages, or ignorance of their own, by vanity or wantonness, by compliance with fashion, or lust of innovation, I have registered as they occurred, 
though commonly, only to censure them, and warn others against the folly of naturalizing useless foreigners to the injury of the natives. I have not rejected any by design, merely because they were unnecessary or exuberant, but have received those which, by different writers, have been differently formed, as viscid and viscidity, vicious and viscosity. Compounded or double words I have seldom noted, except when they obtain a signification different from that which the components have in their simple state. Thus, highwayman, woodman, and horse-courser require an explication, but of thief-like or coach-driver no notice was needed, because the primitives contain the meaning of the compounds. Words, arbitrarily formed by a constant and settled analogy, like diminutive adjectives in ish, as greenish, bluish, adverbs in lee, as dully, openly, substantives in ness, as vileness, faultiness, were less diligently sought, and many sometimes have been omitted, when I had no authority that invited me to insert them. Not that they are not genuine and regular offspring of English roots, but because their relation to the primitive being always the same, their signification cannot be mistaken. The verbal nouns in ing, ing, such as the keeping of the castle, the leading of the army, are always neglected, or placed only to illustrate the sense of the verb, except when they signify things as well as actions, and have therefore a plural number, as dwelling, living, or have an absolute and abstract signification as coloring, painting, learning. The participles are likewise omitted, unless by signifying rather qualities than action, they take the nature of adjectives, as a thinking man, a man of prudence, a pacing horse, a horse that can pace. These I have ventured to call participial adjectives, but neither are these always inserted, because they are commonly to be understood without any danger of mistake by consulting the verb. Obsolete words are admitted when they are found in authors not obsolete, or when they have any force or beauty that may deserve revival. As composition is one of the chief characteristics of a language, I have endeavored to make some reparation for the universal negligence of my predecessors by inserting great numbers of compounded words, as may be found under after, for, new, night, fair, and many more. These, numerous as they are, might be multiplied, but that use and curiosity are here satisfied, and the frame of our language and modes of our combination amply discovered. Of some forms of composition, such as that by which re is prefixed to note repetition, and un to signify contrariety or privation, all the examples cannot be accumulated, because the use of these particles, if not wholly arbitrary, 
is so little limited that they are hourly affixed to new words as occasion requires, or is imagined to require them. There is another kind of composition more frequent in our language than perhaps any other, from which arises to foreigners the greatest difficulty. We modify the signification of many verbs by a particle subjoined, as to come off, to escape by a fetch, to fall on, to attack, to fall off, to apostatize, to break off, to stop abruptly, to bear out, to justify, to fall in, to comply, to give over, to cease, to set off, to embellish, to set in, to begin a continual tenor, to set out, to begin a course or journey, to take off, to copy, with innumerable expressions of the same kind, of which some appear wildly irregular, being so far distant from the sense of these simple words, that no sagacity will be able to trace the steps by which they arrived at the present use. These I have noted with great care, and though I cannot flatter myself that the collection is complete, I believe I have so far assisted the students of our language that this kind of phraseology will be no longer insuperable, and the combinations of verbs and particles, by chance omitted, will be easily explained by comparison with those that may be found. Many words yet stand supported only by the name of Bailey, Ainsworth, Phillips, or the contracted dict for dictionaries subjoined. Of these, I am not always certain that they are read in any book but the work of lexicographers. Of such I have omitted many, because I had never read them, and many I have inserted, because they may perhaps exist, though they have escaped my notice. They are, however, to be yet considered as resting only upon the credit of former dictionaries. Others which I considered as useful, or don't to be proper, though I could not at present support them by authorities, I have suffered to stand upon my own attestation, claiming the same privilege with my predecessors of being sometimes credited without proof. The words thus selected and disposed are grammatically considered. They are referred to the different parts of speech, traced when they are irregularly inflected, through their various terminations, and illustrated by observations, not indeed of great or striking importance, separately considered, but necessary to the elucidation of our language, and hitherto neglected or forgotten by English grammarians. That part of my work, on which I expect malignity most frequently to fasten, is the explanation in which I cannot hope to satisfy those who are perhaps not inclined to be pleased, since I have not always been able to satisfy myself. To interpret a language by itself is very difficult. Many words cannot be explained by synonyms, because the idea signified by them 
has not more than one appellation, nor by paraphrase, because simple ideas cannot be described. When the nature of things is unknown, or the notion unsettled and indefinite, and various in various minds, the words by which such notions are conveyed, or such things denoted, will be ambiguous and perplexed. And such is the fate of hapless lexicography, that not only darkness, but light, impedes and distresses it. Things may be not only too little, but too much known, to be happily illustrated. To explain requires the use of terms less abstruse than that which is to be explained, and such terms cannot always be found. For as nothing can be proved, but by supposing something intuitively known, and evident without proof, so nothing can be defined by the use of words too plain to admit a definition. Other words there are, of which the sense is too subtle and evanescent to be fixed in a paraphrase. Such are all those which are by the grammarians termed expletives, and in dead languages are suffered to pass for empty sounds, of no other use than to fill a verse, or to modulate a period, but which are easily perceived in living tongues to have power and emphasis, though it be sometimes such as no other form of expression can convey. My labor has likewise been much increased by a class of verbs too frequent in the English language, of which the signification is so loose and general, the use so vague and indeterminate, and the senses distorted so widely from the first idea, that it is hard to trace them through the maze of variation, to catch them on the brink of utter inanity, to circumscribe them by any limitations, or interpret them by any words of distinct and settled meaning. Such are bear, b-e-a-r, break, b-r-e-a-k, come, cast, full, get, give, do, put, set, go, run, make, take, turn, throw. If of these the whole power is not accurately delivered, it must be remembered that while our language is yet living, and variable by the caprice of every one that speaks it, these words are hourly shifting their relations, and can be no more ascertained in a dictionary than a grove in the agitation of a storm can be accurately delineated from its picture in the water. The particles are among all nations applied with so great latitude that they are not easily reducible under any regular scheme of explication. This difficulty is not less nor perhaps greater, in English, than in other languages. I have labored them with diligence, I hope with success, such at least as can be expected in a task which no man, however learned or sagacious, has yet been able to perform. End of section 20 of Prefaces and Prologues to Famous Books 
read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California, for LibriVox.